While the government tries to hide the consequences of inflation in their official statistics, Americans see and feel it every day. Join the Mises Institute in Tampa on February 17th for our first event of 2024. We'll discuss inflation, its causes, consequences, and cure. Tom DiLorenzo, Joe Salerno, and Patrick Newman will uncover the state's deceit to reveal inflation for what it really is. Deliberate debasement of the dollar to create winners and losers. Sign up now at Mises.org slash Tampa 2024 and use code ACTION24 for 15% off admission. What is the state? How does it preserve itself? What does it fear? These are the questions Murray Rothbard uncovers in his powerful book, Anatomy of the State. Thanks to our generous donors, the Mises Institute is offering a free copy of this Rothbard classic to Human Action Podcast listeners. Get your copy at Mises.org slash H-A-Pod free. That's H-A, like human action, pod free. This is the Human Action Podcast, where we debunk the economic, political, and even cultural myths of the days. Here's your host, Dr. Bob Murphy. Murray, welcome back to the Human Action Podcast. Well, great to be with you, Bob, and a happy new year to you and all your listeners, and uh, hopefully we'll have a big leap toward freedom this year. Hopefully. Maybe this is the one. (laughs) Uh, So perhaps pursuant to that end, uh, you're starting a course on healthcare, as I understand it. Can you tell us a little bit about that, like how you came to choose this topic and such? Yeah, I guess it was about a year, a year and a half or so ago, I was on a podcast with uh, Charles Froman, who has this Freedom Hub uh, uh, podcast and uh, other things that he does as a lobbyist and as an uh, agent for uh, healthcare products. And uh, I was introduced to uh, James Lyons Wheeler, uh, who had the idea of putting together a course and he also has this website, ipac-edu.org, where there's wonderful courses on healthcare and medicine that are, that are delivered by top people across the country in various uh, ex- fields of expertise. And so he uh, emailed me a few months ago saying, would you be interested in doing a course that would really drill down on this whole economics of healthcare? Because uh, as I'll go through the numbers with you, Bob, it's staggering how much the American people are paying for, quote, healthcare. And I don't use the word healthcare. Uh, we should use the word medical care because that's what you're paying for a medical service. And I, as I like to point out, healthcare is our responsibility as individual, as human beings, that just as we're responsible for our own food intake and our shelter and clothing and other things that uh, we desire as human beings, health is something that should be foremost in our priorities as to uh, living a, a good um a productive life. And if you don't have your health, as they say, yeah, you don't have much going for you. So anyway, um, uh, James contacted uh, Anthony and I, Anthony Samaroff of Scotland, to put together a course. Well, actually, he put together the course and uh, we, we looked at it and said this would really be wonderful to bring it to a broad audience of looking at the economics of healthcare and wellness Because one of the things that I think a lot of physicians are figuring out and a lot of analysts are figuring out, we do not have, quote, health care in America. We have sick care. We basically go to a physician when we're sick. And uh, there's a whole 
idea out there uh, among the medical community, not obviously everybody, otherwise we wouldn't be in the shape that we're in today mm-hmm. in terms of costs and, and, the, uh, and the quality of life that a lot of people have, is that we go to the doctor when something has gone wrong. And uh, the thesis would be from the perspective of wellness is that doctors should help us stay healthy instead of just treating us for an illness that comes about. And um, hey, hey, Murray, let me let me stop you just so the listeners know. So we, we timed the, the release of this episode that if they're hearing it, uh, what, when does this course actually start? Like this, in a sense, is like a commercial. January seventeenth. It'll okay. be a, a seven p.m. Uh, that's the tentative time we have scheduled, mm-hmm. and you can register for it at ipac-edu.org. And um, all all the topics are listed there for the fifteen weeks. And the theme of the of the course is really. What incentives have been put in place over the last several decades that have given us, and these are staggering numbers, Bob. I don't know if your audience is familiar with it. This is from the CDC's website, so we know it has to be accurate, right? $4.1 trillion a year on medical care costs in America. That is so staggering. It's nearly 20% of GDP, and it's probably increasing at, I don't know, 5 6% a year. And we know from the Consumer Price Index that healthcare, medical care, has been the fastest rising component of the CPI for the last 24 years, and probably even before that as well. I just have the numbers from, uh, from 2000. So we know that there's something broken in a, quote, a system, which is really not a system, sort of a hodgepodge of uh, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, employee-based insurance, private insurance, Obamacare. So it's a real hodgepodge of uh, how we deliver medical care to the American people. But the, but the, the point I want to get to about the uh, com- wellness component of the course is that s- six in 10 adult Americans have one chronic illness, and four out of 10 Americans have two chronic illnesses. And what are those illnesses? Cancer, heart disease, kidney problems, COPD, uh, uh, lung problems. And the interesting thing about this is that this didn't come up out, out of the blue. And the CDC says on its page, it's, it's a wonderful uh, page on uh, data regarding uh, the macro aspects of medical care in the United States. Most of these illnesses are, are because of lifestyle choices. And what are the lifestyle choices? We know tobacco, alcohol, uh, lack of exercise, uh, eating the wrong foods. And I don't know if you saw this the other day on uh, lourockwell.com, but there was a a post of a video by a physician who wrote a wonderful book on macular degeneration. He's an ophthalmologist. And the thesis in his book is that uh, macular degeneration, which affects millions and millions of Americans, and I, we have a personal situation, and my wife has it also, and his thesis is that it's diet-related. It's not genetics. It's not environmental. It's basically diet. And he goes through it. And in, this, in his presentation that was posted on lourockwell.com, which was given in Australia, he points out that vegetable oils are really the culprit in the chronic illnesses that affect the American people. So if that's the case, then why are companies, food companies, still putting vegetable oil in their products and that packaged foods, we have to look very careful at the labels. We are very conscious when we go to the supermarket and looking at labels now, and it's very tough to find food products, especially packaged food products that are so-called clean, that don't have all these things in there that are, are um, considered very, very unhealthy, like the vegetable uh, seed oil. And so what we hope to do in this course is to present a lot of information 
on a weekly basis so people can get a better sense of where we are, how we got here, and what are the things that they can do as individuals to improve their health and to reduce their medical care costs. Because I think there is plenty evidence uh, if we restructure the medical uh, delivery system that we could probably reduce health care costs in this country by a third to maybe 50% or more. Uh, because uh, as I like to let people know that I think one of the reasons we have this problem is that we're overinsured, overmedicated, overregulated, and unfortunately we're overeating and overdrinking and smoking too much. So when you put all that together, uh, there's a lot of work to be done to improve the American people's uh, medical care and uh, or health uh, by having a much more rational medical care system. And we want to look at the incentives that have been put into place over the decades, because um, as we know, incentives matter. Well, yeah, a lot, a lot there just to respond to a few of your points. Um, and and I, I don't know if you know this, Murray, but I, I wrote uh, co-wrote a book uh, on some of these topics um, with uh, Doug McGuff, who's an ER doctor. Um, and so, yeah, this is something – the stuff I did was like right when Obamacare had gone through mm. – um, so let me – here's something that – I don't know if you've noticed this. I think people – let's call them right-wingers or conservative libertarian types um, in general. I, when they grapple with people, progressives who want more government involvement in healthcare, they – or you say medical care um, – I think sometimes the the trap they fall into, like they'll see, see statistics like the ones you said about, oh yeah, the U.S. spending is you know way higher per capita than anywhere else in the world, and then typically too, the progressive critic of the U.S. system will will couple that statistic with saying by conventional metrics about you know the performance of these like health outcomes or whatever, the U.S. at best is like the middle of the pack, and yet by far they spend way more. So in terms of bang for the buck. The U.S. you know seems lacking compared to a lot of other countries, and so a lot of times the people presenting those statistics, they're doing it to argue for universal payer sure. or uh, that sort of thing, and so that's why I understand how the people on the right r- recoil against that. But I think they're um, in their zeal to avoid the prescription that's offered, they're ignoring the uh, the diagnosis too, right. and and I think that n- no people. It's it's not the case, and you're actually doing a disservice, I would say, to the free market. If you're saying, no, no, U.S. healthcare system's great. This is capitalism for the win. And, uh, yeah, we spend a lot, but that's because we have more MRIs per capita, and, uh, you know, we don't have long wait lines. So, like, some of those, you know, facts are true, but if they come off as saying that, yes, what we have in the U.S. is a free market in medical services, and we spend a lot because we got a lot of rich people, you know, rich elderly people here who are willing to pay for it, what's yeah. your problem? I think that's very obtuse, and they're you know, they're really giving uh, too much ground to the left. How, how do you feel about that? Oh, there's no question about it. The way I like to present this issue um, when I would uh, do interviews, so when I was promoting my two uh, healthcare books um, on uh, how do we can, how we can create a universal medical care system based upon the single pay, not the single payer, but the uh, 
individual payer, the, the doctor-patient relationship, as opposed to the Medicare for All, and my, my, my most recent book on the finance of healthcare, which is addressed to entrepreneurs and how they can reduce their uh, medical care costs for their employees. I like to put this in historical perspective, since I do have, at this stage of my life, a very long historical perspective on medical care. And I, I think the first time I ever saw a physician was, I think, in the mid-1950s, after I broke my arm in the summer, July 4th, 1955, uh, Bob, I broke my arm in the Catskills uh, when mm -hmm. we we're on summer vacation and I spent uh, over four weeks in the hospital in traction because Did my- Did a firework blow up in your face? My, no, I, what happened was I fell off one of those sliders that you see in a playground and uh -huh. I fell over and there was a rock at the bottom and I, uh, I don't remember- actually falling. I just remember waking up and um, my arm was throbbing. And what happened is my elbow uh, shifted 180 degrees. It was, uh, it was twisted. So mm -hmm. I remember being operated in the uh, hospital room. They put needles in, they put me in traction. And I was in traction for over four weeks as an eight-year-old. And that was not a pleasant time. Then I had a cast, then I had a sling. So it was about a three-month uh, situation. And I saw our my uh, younger brother's pediatrician in the Bronx where we were living. And I think that was the first time I saw a physician and the visit was $5. So I think this, the th one of the themes of this uh, course could be whatever happened to the $5 office visit. Mm -hmm. And today we, know, we don't even know what the cost is because um, our insurance companies pays for it. And then we pay a copay for 15 or 10 or whatever it is. And so we really don't know what the fee for service is with uh, the type of medical care that I got when I was a kid. And uh, my father was a blue collar worker. He had Blue Cross Blue Shield. And in 1961, he had a major operation in, in, uh, that was done at a New York City hospital, one of the premier uh, private hospitals in New York City. I don't know if they're still around, but um, he was making, I think, I don't know, $3, $4 an hour at the time. And Blue Cross Blue Shield covered the hospitalization and the uh, uh, surgery, the anesthesia. Remember, this is four years before the introduction of Medicare and Medicaid. I want people to remember that. The mid-1960s was really a revolution in medical care, plus we also got the HMOs, the health maintenance organizations, that were supposed to put uh, a damper on health care costs. And uh, we're going to explore this in, in the course because you need a historical perspective on all these issues that people are focusing on today whether it's education, whether it's um, obviously what we write about, uh, the business cycle and the Federal Reserve and uh, uh, transportation uh, and now healthcare, which is, I think, the biggest financial issue in addition to the federal budget being out of whack with nearly $1 trillion of interest costs. So how did we get from $5 office visits and maybe for adults it was $7 or $8 back in the 1950s to where it is today? So even on an inflation-adjusted basis, uh, let's assume prices are up tenfold since the mid-1950s. Then we should be looking at if, if uh, medical care costs or doctor's visits went up at, at quote, as the average rate of inflation, we should be paying about 50 to 80 to $100 for a visit. And we know some visits are two, three, $400 for some doctors, especially uh, specialty doctors, uh, uh, cardiologists, neurologists, what have you. And we know that hospital stays are just off the charts. What are they, $1,000 a day, Bob, in most parts of the country for a, for a, a hospital uh, day? And uh, we know surgeries have gone through the roof. And we're going to explore alternatives. And as you well know, and as members of the audience will know, uh, we have uh, 
we have something that can be replicated all across the country, like the Surgery Center of Oklahoma, which charges 50 to, I think, 80% less than what hospitals do for similar surgery. And they have uh, as good or better outcomes than hospitals. So if we have a way of delivering medical care that is high quality, low cost, why isn't that replicated throughout the United States? I think that's a, that's a very important question to ask because doctors have more freedom when they're operating in an entrepreneurial setting than they do in this corporate setting. And as we've seen, uh, my, uh, my physician in New Jersey, when we lived in New Jersey, that office is now part of um, a corporate entity. Uh, the, the hospitals are now buying up practices, which is another reason that we're seeing uh, the distortions in the medical care system. And having moved to Southwest Florida uh, two and a half years ago, I see the distortions firsthand because when we came down here, Bob, if you're a new patient, it took months to get a first visit. Right. Now that to me is mind boggling that it, it takes three, four months to get to see a doctor and if you if you have a serious ailment, then they send you to the ER, which costs I don't know ten times what a what a doctor's visit would be. So we have a real serious problem. The other thing we're we're noticing, and it was written up in the local paper here in Southwest Florida, uh, they're projecting doctor shortages in Florida over the next several years because uh, medical students who are in Florida medical schools are leaving for other parts of the country where they may be uh, 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 initially living in. So I think we're going to see a tremendous strain on the medical care system. And I think this course will help us sort out these issues and to try to come up with proposals. I think uh, James, um, uh, who's uh, head of IPAC, I think he wants to package this as a, as a book with essays and interviews with people. And I would love to have you on the show uh, or the course to talk about your findings in medical care. Uh, your co-author, Doug McGough, I saw his YouTube presentation uh, from a uh, from a conference years ago. Uh, he's an ER doctor, as I recall. Is that yep. right, Bob? Mm -hmm. Yep. And he described historically how this thing evolved with Blue Cross Blue Shield from the 1930s. And that's why Having been a history major, I am fascinated by the evolution of American society or any society for that matter, and how these ideas first get introduced, get ignored or shot down, and then years later, they get resurrected as the answer, the cure, if you will, for these issues. And we see this in healthcare. Um, and again, having done a lot of research in the history of medical care, I think it's one of the most fascinating aspects of, of uh, American history is that we've gone from the doctor-patient relationship from decades ago, and not too long ago, since I was part of that system. And if you needed to see a specialist, uh, your uh, GP or pediatrician would send you to a specialist uh, for any ailment. And thank goodness, most young people are healthy, so you don't have to see a specialist that often. But if you did, it was, uh, it was a routine visit and it wasn't prohibitive, uh, expensive. And so what we hope to do in this course is to go each week into the incentives and disincentives that has given us this $4 trillion uh, cost of medical care. And um, the more you look at, at this issue from a human action perspective, and let's use the term of, of, of the podcast from a human action perspective, is that medical care is no different, even though economists will, will say it is, than any other service that we get in the marketplace, that you have supply, demand, you have subjective value, you have time preference. 
And um, if we apply Austrian economic principles to medical care, I think we would come up with a better approach than we have today. And I hope this course will will get the type of um, attention because I, I think we're going to provide a, a very valuable um, bit of information for for uh, attendees and uh, that people understand that there's no reason whatsoever for the government to get inv- be involved in medical care and that uh, the incentives that have been put into place has made things very expensive. And that's why uh, uh, some people have opted out of the system and they're willing to pay uh, on an ongoing basis and have a, maybe a, an insurance policy for a catastrophic uh, a cost, uh, which even that could be reduced if we apply some um, common sense in terms of how we treat illnesses. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of work to be done in a in a sector, Bob, that is really consuming resources that could be used for better purposes that to make the economy more competitive because uh, – when you go to a doctor's office, it's amazing how many people are there just doing paperwork mm-hmm. for Medicare, Medicaid, and the insurance companies. And that, to me, is a dead weight of uh, on, on the uh, sector because they're not producing any medical services. They're just complying with uh, uh, the the regulations and the uh, and the payment that they need to get uh, to keep the office open. And so... Um, one of the medical people that my wife saw while we were down here, he used to be in Medicare, uh, but he opted out because he said it took over a year to get paid for Medicare. And that's just an untenable situation if you're any sort of professional or practitioner is to get paid a year for your services. So you can see th- there are problems in the medical care uh, system that needs to be addressed. Yeah, a lot there. Um, you're right. So for probably at this point, most of our viewers are aware of this, but in case you're not that, yeah, people get upset. Like, yeah, I went to see the doctor. He wasn't even looking at me half the time. He was just, you know, typing stuff on the computer. And that's partly because they have to do that. Like if if they are embedded within this system and they're playing by the rules, they have to document everything. Otherwise they're not going to get the the claim, you know, the reimbursement from either the health insurance, the, the private insurer or, the government payee on that particular uh, service. And so that's why I got to do all that stuff. But uh, but what, it's even worse. I mean, doctors could be penalized financially and maybe criminally if they put the wrong code in for right, Medicare yeah. or Medicaid. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that that is so mind boggling that you would penalize people for making uh, a mistake. I mean, it, it just shows you the, the current system that we have today is is not about good outcomes. It's, a, it's about the rules and regulations, which don't, uh, which don't benefit the patient. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, for, for people, again, I, I'm sure we're, most of the people listening to this are going to be tracking along, but in case someone does have concerns, this isn't just all theoretical, like, oh, we like the free market and government's bad. Like, as you say, Murray, uh, the surgery center of Oklahoma, uh, you know, I've had Dr. Smith on, I think he was on this show and then other podcasts I've hosted before, interviewed him in different contexts. And yeah, they're just the results they're providing. And so for folks who don't know, you know, go ahead and look them up. Like literally, if you got some medical issue, you may want to go there that they just don't, they don't even take regular insurance. They don't take Medicare and it's just, everything's cash, but because they get rid of so much overhead and mm-hmm. just the, you know, the, the, they get paid promptly and such that they can afford to, as you say, Murray, give, especially like with prescription 
medication. They can afford to give it. He, I think he was saying sometimes it's like 95% cheaper. And just because that just shows what the, how much of a markup there is on things and, uh, yeah. and certain procedures. And again, folks, it's like somebody in another city, it's cheaper for them and they get it done faster if they schedule a trip. They fly to Oklahoma, have this procedure done there, and then stay in a hotel a week to recover and then fly back home. And there, it's all, you know, they all pay out of pocket cash for that. And it's still cheaper to them than if they did it the conventional way at their local hospital, even if they have a good insurance plan with what they would be paying out of pocket, you know, even after insurance picked up most of the bill. And let, me give, let me give yeah. you a real life example. Mm-hmm. When I was uh, researching my first book, I came across a, a direct primary care physician here in Southwest Florida. And for, for uh, uh, listeners who don't know, direct primary care is a very simple business model. You pay a monthly fee to the doctor and the doctor is available virtually 24-7. And the doctor only has between 800 and 1,000 patients, which makes it very easy to see a doctor just about any time you want, as opposed to a doctor in a regular practice, which has about 2,000 or more patients. Anyway, I, I interviewed this uh, doctor who does direct primary care, and she told me she had a patient with no insurance. And he needed some sort of surgery. I forgot if it was either a hip or a knee. And the local hospital, because he was uh, not, not insured, they quoted him $20,000 for the procedure. And so the uh, doctor said, you should contact the Surgery Center of Oklahoma and see what they would charge for the same procedure. So the patient called the surgery center. And the surgery, the trip, the hotel stay, the whole thing was $5,000, Bob. I mean, when you compare the cost of what a local hospital would charge a non-insured patient with what the Surgery Center of Oklahoma, for, for a lot of people, they've, they've sat down and done the numbers and say, okay, if I have a real bad situ- medical issue, uh, I, I will have saved all this money that I can uh, pay for it, or I can get myself a catastrophic policy with maybe a five or a $10,000 deductible, whatever the case may be. But for some people, uh, they don't want any part of the insurance um, industry because they figure it's very expensive, which of course it is. And we're seeing this in um, in um, what employers are now paying per employee for a family of four. I think the latest numbers I saw, Bob, were well over $20,000 a year for an insurance policy. And the interesting thing is, and I, I felt this personally when I was teaching at Rampo College, where we were paying nothing for our uh, health insurance. And uh, eventually it went up to, we were paying, I think, 20% of the cost. So we're up to $5,000 a a year. Uh, The only good news about that, it was with pre-tax dollars. So we weren't taxed on that $5,000 of income that we were shelling out. But again, this is a finance issue. This is an ethical issue. This is um, uh, a moral issue, if you will, because... uh, uh, there are people who believe that healthcare is a right, which is very bizarre. When you look at the Bill of Rights, it's just not there. And the other thing, Bob, that I, I wanted to bring up is that uh, the Constitution doesn't provide for any government involvement in healthcare or, or medicine. Uh, and that's why I keep on quoting Article 1, Section 8 of uh, the Constitution. Um, virtually the whole federal budget is is not authorized by the government. So I think we're, we're uh, on sound ground when we say we are in a, 
constitutional crisis. We are in a post-constitutional America where the government is doing things that it's not authorized. And uh, the two good examples of what the old days were like, uh, not that I was around, but when the Supreme Court struck down the income tax in 1895, what did the proponents of the income tax do? They amended the Constitution. We got the 16th Amendment. And then when the uh, prohibitionists wanted to uh, ban alcohol, they knew they couldn't do it by law. So we got a constitutional amendment, uh, the 18th Amendment, that gave us prohibition. So back then, at least there was a respect for the Constitution and our constitutional republic. Today, for decades, we haven't had that. And so that's why I think we have a, a constitutional issue. We have uh, obviously a medical issue, an ethical issue, a financial issue. And um, when you put it all together, that that the reason we have this enormous medical bill for the for the people and they're paying it. You see, the, the, this is why transparency is so important. The American people don't realize they're paying for the $4 trillion. The government is not paying for it. The government is just a conduit for the money that's extracted from the people. And then it goes to all the various special interests that feed at the trough in Washington, D.C. And that's, I think, a message that we need to get out, Bob, in every aspect of our society, is that the people think the government has this uh, load of money that uh, is just is just uh, being held back because they're not in, in, in the uh, uh, right uh, crowd in Washington. And so we have to... Uh, let people know that um, a government is, is, is broke, it's bankrupt, and, and you, the American people, are paying for everything that the government does. Yeah, well said. Uh, it's funny you, you mentioned the historical, you know, the passing those constitutional – not that you or I support as good policy, right. you know, of, uh, federal income tax or alcohol prohibition, but at least, like you say, they said, okay, well, the rules are the rules, and we'll go amend the Constitution. Yep. Um, another example of that is apparently when the Eisenhower administration started uh, funding the interstate uh, highway program, it was challenged on constitutional grounds. Like some critics said, well, how does the federal government get off, you know, where do you get the authority to, to build roads? And they had to argue on national defense grounds and say, well, yeah. you know, if we were invaded, it'd be good if we had this, you know, interstate highway system so we could quickly move troops to blah, blah. So, you know, that's kind of a specious defense, I think, but at least they felt the need to, as, whereas now, if you remember, actually it's very relevant to our conversation. One of my favorite uh, examples of this is somebody asked Nancy Pelosi, where in the constitution does it authorize the government to force people to get health insurance? And she just said, are you kidding? Or maybe she said, are you serious? Like, in other words, like the very idea that she would have to go and point to the constitution as to where do we get the authority to pass the affordable care act? Like to her, it's like, she thought the person was trolling her. Yeah. That, you know, the idea that we need constitutional authority to do something like the, where, you know, presumably in her mind, well, cause the general welfare, and this is a good thing. And yeah. the, you know, of course the constitution wants us to do things that help people. Gee, well, th this is the problem that I've seen um, uh, as a naturalized citizen, Bob. Uh, uh, I took an oath to uphold the Constitution when I was 12 and a half years old, and I raised my right hand in, uh, in front of a judge in lower Manhattan in June of 1959. I said I would defend the Constitution. And as I, as I got older and started reading in detail what the Constitution's all about, I said to myself, wh wh why, why is the federal budget what it is, given the fact that there's no authorization for, the, for these expenditures? And then, you, and then when I wrote my book, Tax-Free 2000, on how to create a tax-free society, and uh, I went through all the things that the government spends 
money on in the federal budget and looked at the uh, Article 1, Section 8, I said, there's a real disconnect here. And I think medical care is a prime example of that. Uh, when Medicare and Medicaid came about in 1965, that was the next leap forward, as Bob Higgs would uh, point out in his book, uh, uh, crisis and Leviathan. Even though there was no crisis in healthcare, people were getting healthcare. There were public public hospitals in New York City and public uh, facilities in other parts of the country. And doctors, I've spoken to doctors, uh, and they said that they would provide free medical care to people in their community. They're still doing it today. In fact, there's one uh, uh, husband and, uh, and wife doctor team who've created a nonprofit. Uh, uh, health center, medical center in central Jersey, and she doesn't file for Medicaid claims anymore. She says it's too onerous. So she just provides medical care to some patients for free. And then she has this nonprofit medical center in central Jersey that's been around for more than 20 years now, doing incredible, incredible um, uh, medical care for uh, low-income folks who travel sometimes 20, 30 miles to get there, which is really extraordinary uh, in today's day and age. And uh, it's all done without a penny of government uh, money. In fact, I, I still contribute to, uh, to uh, the center because they do such great work. And um, my ethic tells me that uh, I need to support people who do great work in their communities, even though I don't live in the community. I, I no longer have any ties to New Jersey uh, because I'm not there, but they've done such great work. I've supported them for the time I found out about it uh, in the early 2000s. And they do it at such a cost-effective method that this could be replicated, I think, all over the country because there are so many retired physicians that would love to do t 5, 10, 20 hours a week of volunteer work in a medical, uh, in a nonprofit medical uh, center. And you would get rid of the $800 billion that Medicaid spends today. And uh, we... we we heard just what happened in California. Governor Newsom announced that CalMed, which is uh, California's Medicaid program, will now be, be providing medical care to uh, the so-called illegals, in, uh, illegal immigrants in uh, California at a cost of $3 billion a year when the state is running a $68 billion budget deficit. So again, you can see the finances don't make sense, Bob. Uh, and now medical care has become an entitlement, part of the welfare state. And these are some of the issues we want to address, how we reorder the incentives to uh, replicate these nonprofit medical centers all across the country. Because uh, I support three of them in New Jersey. One that I was a founding trustee in Bergen County when I was contacted by the founder because he, he uh, uh, heard that I was interested in nonprofit medical centers because I uh, uh, hosted a symposium at Rampo College in 2004 on that. And um, uh, one of the keynote speakers was Dr. Gene Cheslock, the founder of the uh, Parker Family Medical Center in um, Red Bank, New Jersey. I support them as well because they're doing great work raising money the old-fashioned way, the voluntary method, um, and not being burdened by uh, government in, um, regulations. And this could be replicated all across the country, especially in uh, uh, low-income communities. And we could have a much better outcome for low-income people who have, unfortunately, serious medical problem because of obesity, uh, diabetes, and uh, other illnesses. So again, what we want to do in this course, Bob, is to just lay it out there saying, here's the structure we have today, here's how it came about, and here are viable solutions, not pie-in-the-sky stuff, not theoretical stuff, but really practical applications of medical practices, good economics and finance, and uh, 
the left should be thrilled about it because it means less bureaucracy. Remember, bureaucracy is co- is not costless. Bureaucracy costs money, which doesn't provide the services that people need. So no matter what field we're in, whether it's especially education, healthcare, and other aspects of American society, if we reduce bureaucracy, then we free up resources to, to deliver the services in a much more cost-effective manner. Yeah, I was, you just... Um reminded me of something when, when there when you said that, you know, the left should be happy by this, about this stuff. And I remember I was talking to, I think he was a pulmonologist. So, you know, he was an actual uh, MD, but also he taught at a school, uh, university. And he was saying how they had set up a thing where I might have some of the details wrong, but the spirit of this is definitely correct. Where some of their uh, senior students, you know, going through the medical program at the school, were going to work at a local clinic to give free, medical care, you know, to like the indigent people of the community that, you know, they, they had not no uh, insurance and, you know, they were just in and out of the ER and that kind of thing. And so it was sort of like a win-win where, you know, these students who needed practice and, you know, they would have under the oversight of their professors and whatever, sure. but the, they would be, you know, working with real world patients, not just a you know, textbook or something and, and then giving, you know, free care to the people in the community that weren't getting it elsewhere. You know, it's voluntary. They weren't rounding people up off the street and forcing them <laughs> to, to undergo experimentation. They were saying, if you want to come here and have our students, you know, look at you and give you some advice and whatnot. And, but I, th- I think the program ended up getting shut down because they were concerned about like legal issues and regulations. And I think also there was like dissatisfaction among the left about, Hey, you know, the, the, why are we giving substandard care? You know, you wouldn't send your own kids to this thing. So why are we giving substandard care to the homeless or what? You, you get what I'm saying? So sure. it was, again, a sort of thing where it, unless it's coming from the government and it's a program that's administered by progressives, they don't like it. Well, this is the problem with the left is that they really believe in egalitarianism, that everyone should have the same access to everything. Well, that's just nonsense because it just violates a very fundamental principle of human existence that some people are more talented than others. Some people have greater income than others. And uh, that's the nature of the human experience. And they don't seem to accept that. They seem to have this crazy notion that uh, just because you exist, you're entitled to food, clothing, shelter, uh, cell phones, internet access, uh, what have you, medical care, education. And they don't believe in um, the division of labor. They don't believe in specialization. They just think that, and this is really trickle-down economics. And I've said this from, for a long time ago. The left really believes in trickle-down economics. The money goes from the, from the workers, the business owners, to the government, and then it trickles down in the form of uh, programs, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, uh, eighth education, uh, uh, food stamps, you name it. And we're supposed to accept this as the norm. And I think what we're trying to, what we're going to be doing this course, at least what, what, what my goal is, is to point out there is a better way to provide quality services to everybody. Not, not everyone's going to drive a Lexus or a Mercedes or a BMW, but if you can get a good used car for $10,000 through Carvana or some of the other places or CarMax, whatever the case may be, you need transportation. Now, if you desire to have a Mercedes, then work for it. (laughs) Something that I'm sure you and 
I learned as youngsters, if you want something, you work for it. That's what I saw my father do five days a week. And then he was working seven days a week, five days in the uh, sheet metal shop and two days a week driving a cab in New York City. So he was working seven days a week for, for not a long time. And then he finally got his own cab uh, and, he, and he was still working uh, five, six, seven days a week. And so that's how he provided for his family. And so when we came here as immigrants, Bob, there was, from what my parents told me, there was no idea of going, quote, on welfare. Uh, a nonprofit organization helped us out, my father told me, HIAS. At that time, it was called the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. And now they're just called HIAS. And they've been around since the mid-19th century, helping refugees all over the world. And so we have non-governmental institutions that do great work in every sector of the economy. And this is something that I think we need to expand our um, presentation, say, here are the issues that you're concerned about, Mr. and Mrs. and Miss on the left. Here are viable solutions that go back decades before the New Deal, before the Great Society, like the mutual aid societies that David Beato writes in his wonderful book on, on mutual aid societies. And so people from all well, ethnic backgrounds, religious backgrounds, uh, racial backgrounds, develop these mutual aid societies. And so that I think is a big piece of the puzzle when it comes to medical care, because uh, with what I think, I think the numbers are 60 million, somewhere around there of people on Medicaid. That is a shocking indictment of the U.S. Uh, of U.S. economic uh, and healthcare policy, because prior to Medicaid, people were getting medical care uh, through their local hospitals, charity care. They still have them in New Jersey, even though they get reimbursed by the state, but they could raise the money voluntarily as these nonprofit uh, health centers that I've been uh, uh, supporting uh, over the years. So again, we have viable solutions that uh, are not pie in the sky, and we should just be literally uh, beating the drum on these things. And, and rather than talking so much endlessly about what the problem is, we're talking about how to make things better. And I think that's what I think... Um, uh, libertarians especially should be talking about is not decrying the current situation, but say here are an alternative that there's no such thing as a guarantee, but uh, is much better than the current system that is really soaking the taxpayers. Um, and of course, giving us these, what, $2 trillion budget deficits in Washington. Yeah. Uh, I wonder, Murray, do you get much into, or are you planning on getting into in this course, uh, issues about the supply side that, yeah. Um, uh, you know, I, I, to me, one reason that geez, medical products and services are so ridiculously expensive is that there are regulate, like it's, it's not that some entrepreneur can just open up a hospital down the street right. and say, oh, we'll charge you half of that fee for a nightly stay. And we won't charge you $60 for aspirin or, you know, with some of these horror stories you see when people right. look at the itemized thing. Uh, you know, when you say, well, how come someone doesn't do that? Or like one reason is, well, because it's illegal. Like, you know, you have to get the local yeah. board to sign off on a, you know, there has to be medical need or something to open up a new hospital. So yes. that's, that's why it's not a free market. Oh, there's no question about it. I'll give you an example. Uh, the Bergen Volunteer Medical Initiative that I was a founding trustee for, the website is bvmi.org, bvmi.org, located in Hackensack, New Jersey, the county seat of Bergen County. You wouldn't think that Bergen County, being a fairly wealthy community, would have the need for a nonprofit medical center, but there are pockets of uh, low-income uh, families in Hackensack, in Englewood, in uh, um, 
uh, Teaneck and other places. And so they're doing incredible. They're saving lives at uh, no cost to the taxpayer. They have a, a wonderful uh, suite of offices in uh, in uh, Hackensack and people come uh, from all over the, uh, the area to, to, to get the uh, uh, care. And, um, and so this is what uh, needs to be done and, and, and say, listen, if it could be done here, it could be done anywhere in the country. The thing is, what are the constraints? The, the, I'm, I'm trying to think what, in order to open up this facility, the founding trustees decided to get an ambulatory care license from the state of New Jersey or the county. To me, all you have to do is say, we're opening this facility, here are the people involved, and we're opening our doors. And that's what should be done. Why do you need a government permission to do something that is based upon a very valuable service to people? And that's uh, Leonard Reed's title of his book, Anything That's Peaceful. So if you're doing something that is uh, of value to people in the community, why do we need government permission to do anything that is based upon voluntary um service or, or production. And so that is another area. And we know the whole concept of regulatory capture. We're going to be discussing that in, in the courses of, of how um, the insurance companies, the pharmaceutical companies have really got their uh, tentacles into the uh, into Washington, D.C. and how um, medical care is really ruled by them as opposed to the uh, having the doctor-patient relationship be the heart of medical care in this country. Yeah. And for people who think that you know we're, this is overblown or something, the stuff Murray and I are talking about. I mean, there's you can see it more cleanly in examples like where uh, I don't, you've probably heard of these cases, Murray, where like just to do African hair braiding, yes, you need a special license to do that, and you know, in a, in a certain community, like people, you know, the, some someone who's been doing it, you know, some woman's been like her grandma taught her how to do it. She's been doing her whole life, and she's the expert, and everyone, everyone who's in that sector knows she's the expert, and yet it's illegal for her to do it because this group over here won't sign off on, on giving her permission. And uh, gee, it seems like when the, the existing practitioners get to vote on, should we allow more competition? They have very high standards, a very high threshold to prove that, oh yes, we should let someone new come in and compete with us. But what do you say, Murray, you know, to the average person who's here in this, they might say, sure, maybe there's mistakes on the margin guys, but come on, you can't just, the government has to clearly play some role in setting a minimum standard of quality. You can't just have quacks, you know, slicing people open because they got some online degree for medical school that, you know, brain, brain surgeons are us. So, you know, c come on, guys, you can't just have complete anarchy when it comes to the regulation of healthcare. So what do you, would you say to someone who's got that kind of... Well, that's why we have a whole certification process. I mean, the, the, the quintessential example is uh, Underwriters Laboratory. When you buy electoral products and you see that UL label, people realize that uh, it's been tested in, in an, an, I guess it's a nonprofit organization. You have consumer reports, you got the, uh, which tests myriad of products uh, across the board. You have the same thing for medical care. Um, there's an uh, organization called Medibid, uh, which is like the, uh, the um, uh, eBay of medical care, where doctors bid for patients' um, uh, serve, uh, patients' uh, care. And so there are medical entrepreneurs all over the country doing things that are challenging the status quo. Uh, medical cost sharing is another example of that, whether it's uh, Christian based or, or religious based or it's uh, secular. 
people realizing it's more cost effective. You have a board that uh, oversees it of, of professionals in medical care and other uh, fields, whether they're CPAs or what have you. The, the problem with the left is, and I think no one has really talked about this to a large degree, the, the people on the left don't trust people. <laughs> and ironically, they're the ones that say, therefore, the people, but they don't trust the people to do the right thing. They think that you need nameless, faceless bureaucrats to oversee this. How do we know the nameless, faceless bureaucrats are honest? And so this is, this is the challenge that all human beings have. How do you know that you're getting quality products and quality services? Well, the per a good example of that is if you're a food company and if you taint your food, it's very hard to stay in business if your customers are dying. The same thing with car companies. We have a lot of regulations, as you know, in, in the uh, manufacturing of automobiles. Well, it'd be very hard to sell an automobile if your transmissions fall out, if your brakes fail after a few thousand miles. So companies have to internalize uh, the quality that they need in order to satisfy consumers. And this goes back to the whole concept of subjective value. Uh, consumers are not stupid. I mean, we now go into the marketplace and today you literally can go into the marketplace and get prices for different items literally at a, at a touch of a button. You have Trivago for uh, hotels. You have uh, a progressive uh, insurance company which gives you the prices of other insurance companies when you're looking on their website. This is incredible that a company would allow you to see their competitors' prices on their website. Mm -hmm. So again, the internet has made possible, technology has made possible for people to get more and more information. In the old days, Bob, you really had to shop around to buy a TV. You had to go from store to store. You had to go um, and, and uh, you didn't, couldn't even look things up. You either had articles in the newspaper or maybe go to Consumer Reports, or then go sort of sort of shopping. That was what a lot of uh, time used up. Now you go online and you can check uh, a, uh, a product that you want or an item that you want and different uh, companies and get that information uh, seamlessly. You have Edmonds, you have Kelly Blue Book on automobiles. They rank automobiles. You could do the same thing for medical care as well. And so uh, you see reviews, you go online and you see reviews either at the uh, doctor's office website or other places. And this is the beauty of the internet is that people, uh, when we were looking for doctors in the area, we would see the reviews. Some were favorable, some were unfavorable. So what do you do? You really have to make a decision. And uh, then you get recommendations from our primary care doctor here in, uh, in uh, Florida. So he's the one that has been vetting doctors in the area because we live in an independent living facility. And so with an elderly population, you need to have um, special specialists and he does the vetting, uh, which is great because um, uh, he's now our primary care doctor and we trust him to get us uh, the good specialists that we need. And so um, information we know is not costless, Bob, and the left thinks that everything is costless. And so what we have to tell them that life is not so simple as they make it out to be, that you just have a government program and everything is going to be well. No, you have to get gather information in order to make the best decision possible for you and your family. Yeah, well said. And it's, uh, you know, you mentioned the TV thing and just, uh, this is an obvious point, but I, I just want to reassure, I think a lot of these points that we're making, it's more that the listener who, yes, they believe in freedom, they believe in free markets and so on, but just, you know, needing some reassurance about, well, what would the actual mechanics be? Like, how, how could this work? And just in terms of, yeah, television sets like Walmart, uh, yeah, you can go ahead and do research on different kind of TVs and performance, but you're pretty sure 
that if you buy a TV from Walmart, it's not going to explode. Right. Whereas in the Soviet Union, that really was a thing. Like people knew, or at least I've heard this from people that seem to have actually documented it. It's not just an old wives tale that like certain factor, like if you looked and saw that a product was made at the end of the week, you shouldn't use it because that's when they were running out of parts and stuff and they would just throw stuff together. And, you know, if you bought a TV that was assembled on a Friday, it was much less likely to work than a TV that was made on a Monday. Um, and so, you know, there's that element. And, and so why, why are you thinking that? Well, it's because the people who run Walmart, they don't just go for the lowest bidder. They do research too. And they decide which brands to put on our shelves because they know in the long run, if consumers realize, oh yeah, I bought a TV from Walmart that blew up, like literally exploded, then they're going to be distrustful of Walmart. It's not just, oh, I'm going to avoid that brand of TV. They're going to be mad at Walmart. Why did you stock that on the shelf? And so, you know, there's vetting on the front end. Just like if you went to a brain surgeon at a hospital, the hospital's going to make sure his degree is from a reputable place and so sure. on. They're going to make sure he has malpractice insurance, even if the law didn't require that, Right. you know, things like that. So again, because why? If your uncle died in a horrible surgery at this local hospital and it's an open free market, then you would, wouldn't go to that hospital anymore. You'd go somewhere else. Right. So it's on their, it's in their interest too, to vet the people working in their premises on the front. So again, these, some of these horror stories and also too, as we say, it's not like right now, the system with government intervention is great. You know I mean? No, the system right now is awful. And so people are just saying at best, Oh, well, it'd be even more awful if we had a free market and, you and I are kind of walking through saying, well, why would that be the case? Why would you expect that? Well, we had a, basically a free market me uh, medical care system before Medicare and Medicaid. I mean, as, as the examples I gave you, going to the pediatrician back in the 50s with my parents, it was $5 for the office visits, $7 for the, uh, for the home visit on Wednesdays. That's when the doctor did his, um, uh, his visits uh, to the home if he was sick. And I remember him coming to the home a couple of times on a Wednesday. And then as inflation um, reared its ugly head in the 60s, the prices went up to where it was a $10 visit for the, or an $8 visit, whatever the case was. But the point is inflation and regu medical regulations have really driven medical care costs up enormously in America. And we just have to uh, uh, br beat that drum is that if we want lower prices, then we have to talk about monetary policy, which, of course, no one wants to talk about, especially the presidential candidates. And so all this is tied in, Bob. I mean, I take a look. I take this from a holistic approach is that um, uh, prices have just gone through the roof in every sector of the economy because of uh, the, the Federal Reserve's money printing for the, for the past uh, 100 plus years and especially the last few years. I mean, uh, uh, Jeremy Siegel, uh, Wharton um, uh, Wharton School of University of Penn uh, finance professor has a great uh, letter in Wednesday's uh, Wall Street Journal excoriating the Fed for its monetary policy, which gave us the inflation. And people are trying to poo-poo the inflation of the last few years. But um, And now, of course, what's the reaction? Uh, Biden wants uh, a a Medicare to negotiate drug price, which I guess is, is a good thing to do because why should the drug companies have free ride uh, or at least a uh, set prices without negotiation with Medicare, which pays for these uh, prices. So the, the, the point I would make, uh, and, and I think we'll just come through the course, is that we are very heavily 
over-medicated. There's no question about it. Uh, and uh, that's why we want to bring in some um, alternative approaches to medical care. Uh, this is not medical advice, but pe- what people are doing right now in their practices, either from a naturopathic perspective or others, and uh, getting good results with uh, their patients. So again, there are many ways of delivering, quote, medical care that is not the traditional allopathic approach. That's been um, that's been uh, the narrative now for uh, more than 100 years. So again, we want to explore every aspect of the economics and finance of medical care and talk about uh, how people can get healthier because um, as that video on lewrockwell.com the other day pointed out, I mean, it is frightening to see the curve of heart disease, diabetes, stroke, and other illnesses for the past 75 years when uh, vegetable oils were um, introduced into the American diet. And uh, I'm convinced that uh, the diet is I don't know, 80, 90% of the reasons that people have um, medical issues. So that's something we, we want to explore mm-hmm. with use of uh, uh, with doctors who are using a different approach than the traditional ways of dealing with um, illnesses today. Mm-hmm. Well, I got uh, look at the clock here. Maybe one more substantive question, Murray, for you, and then I'll let you again give the details for the course for people who are hearing this in time and want to jump in. So, and with this, I think the listeners know this and you know this, Murray, but I'm very much on your side with this, but it did occur to me, I am try to get in the head of the critics. So let me pose this challenge to you and, and see what your reaction is. What if somebody says something like listening to our conversation thus far and say, oh, you guys, what are you talking about? On the one hand, you said that we can trust consumers and we don't need regulation and licensure laws and things like that because we can trust the market to deliver good products. And you even said, Murray, something like, uh, a food company, you know, that poisoned its customers would go out of business, but then you keep hammering home that diet is responsible for eighty percent of our ailments, and that it's the seed oil or, better, or the vegetable oils, and da da da. da. So, wh- so which is it? Is, can we trust the free market to deliver health healthy food that's good for people, or is the food killing us? So, you know, I thought I thought you trusted the market. Well, the, the interesting thing is uh, we know the uh, government's food pyramid has been so wrong for so many decades mm-hmm. and people have been following it, namely that the, we should have a low-fat um, uh, diet, we should have uh, substitute uh, these uh, uh, sugar substitutes, which are, according to some people are really terrible for you, and the, f- and the food pyramid is awful. So vegetable, vegetable oils uh, have, have been uh, around for a long time, promoted by the food companies. Maybe they don't know what the uh, ramifications are, but people who've looked at the, the data and seen the consumption of vegetable oil, uh, vegetable seed oil and, and other ailments, and have done uh, cross-sectional studies of uh, societies where this uh, product is not introduced in the marketplace. In other words, every topic has a narrative and people either support it because they don't know any be- better or they do know better, but it's that their business. So the question is, the critics, the critics have a point. How do we know what, what information we're getting is true? Let's look at COVID now. During COVID, people were critical of the whole concept of masking and isolation and lockdowns and uh, critical of, of the so-called vaccine, and they were shut out. So if we're going to have an open free market and, um, and discussion and transparency, then everything should be put on the table and the news media should be part of the solution of providing different perspectives on every, especially medical issue facing the country. Okay, great. So again, can you give the details for those who are catching this in time and want to tune in? 
the, the website is IPAC, IPAK-EDU.org. And you can go and uh, look for the course. It's called The Economics of uh, Healthcare. And uh, I mean, it's called The uh, Economics of Healthcare and Wellness. And they'll run for 15 weeks starting January 17th at 7 p.m. That's the uh, tentative time, uh, starting date and time. And we're very excited about uh, reaching as many people as possible uh, to have uh, this course provide the information we need, not only to make better decisions, but to bring the issues to the wider community in where we live and hopefully uh, to have a nationwide discussion as to what's the best way to move forward in order to reduce that $4 trillion medical bill and have better outcomes. Okay, well, great. Well, uh, folks, my guest this week has been friend of the Mises Institute, Murray Sabrin. Uh, Murray, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Bob. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. In the meantime, you can find more content like this on Mises.org.